0: To love learning, to laugh, to love, to be loved, to see beauty, to understand, to bring grace
1: to the things
0: that matter most. This is Psychology America with Dr. Alexandra. Welcome to my show. For every life stage, we have questions. Let's enhance our lives together as we explore the things that matter most. Our sponsor today is Ponderosa Studios of Lafayette, New Jersey. Warm sound, good people. In this episode, I have a conversation with Dr. Deb Bernstein, a licensed psychologist who's been in clinical practice in the village of Warwick, New York for 24 years. I would describe Dr. Deb as a Renaissance woman. She's also a potter meaning she creates and glazes beautiful pottery and can be found on drdebspots.com. She's a gourmet cook with 12,000 followers on her food blog on Instagram, dr.debs.pots. Whether it's with her patients, through her pottery, as a gourmet cook or as a mother, Dr. Deb sees her life work as creating and witnessing transformation. Dr. Deb and I begin with exchanging ideas on a sex therapy case I had in which the woman felt no desire and thought that she would be perfectly happy if she didn't have sex for the rest of her life. We then moved on to talk about the hot topic of sexual consent, including how we give or don't give clear signals of yes or no going further. Lastly, Dr. Deb shares some stories and ideas about how to deal with the pain of losing a loved one. I'm delighted to share this first episode of Psychology America with you, and I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Hi, Deb. Hi, Alexandra. Lovely to
1: be with you tonight. So nice to be with you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Thank you for having me in your home here in Warwick.
1: So I'm hosting you... For our time together, and you're hosting me on your podcast, it's perfect. And the fire
0: is very nice right here. Totally nice and warm. So, Deb, you're a psychologist.
1: I am. And we went to the same graduate school.
0: That's right. Probably some time apart. Yes, different times, but same graduate school. When did you graduate? 2002. So I was
1: 87.
0: Finished. Okay. So I thought maybe um, we could begin with talking about a case that I had a number of years ago and I could get your perspective on it. I'd love to hear it. Okay. This was a case of um, a couple. They were probably late 20s, early 30s, did not have children yet. And they were happy. The woman said she experienced... Zero
1: desire.
0: Zero. Zero. Okay. She said in front of him, lovingly, that she'd be fine if she never did it again. Oui. Yes. <laughs> he knew that, of course. Her mother was the same way. Zero desire. And she loved him, and she didn't want it to be this way. So they came in. uh, to a psychologist, to me,
1: to talk about it. That's a tough problem. Yes. Okay, so do you want to tell me a little bit about what you did, or should I start asking questions right Um, away? Because I know what I would want to know.
0: Hmm. I'm thinking um, maybe I should tell you what I did, because it will answer some of your questions. Okay. But then I'd like to hear what you would do, because you're about to launch a new practice in sex therapy, or you have been doing it.
1: Well, I have been doing sex therapy for many, many, many years, and I've specialized in it, but I've never really marketed myself as a sex therapist, and I'm about to do that.
0: Okay. And I know that it took you a long, long, long time to call yourself a potter.
1: It did, so... I, that's an interesting question if I call myself a sex therapist. I probably have, because I feel okay. like I've done
0: enough of it. Yes. I, my point is, I know that you are cautious. Um, you feel like you really want to be an expert at something before you will market it.
1: I would say as that's As you have true. with
0: pottery. Right. That's yes. true. And that's a different topic.
1: Maybe um, we'll have to ask.
0: That. Yes. So, um, so, as I said, she had zero desire. I remember that as we talked further about it, we were able to realize that um, once she got going, she was okay.
1: That's really important and also pretty common for women.
0: Yes. Now, what happened in the dynamic of the relationship is that because she didn't want to have sex, he every time he would touch her, she would cringe after a while because she was afraid that he wanted sex. He started to want it more and more because he got nothing. And it got to a point where, whereas they used to be physically affectionate, once um, she avoided sex for long enough and he became more and more desperate to have it, she was afraid that every time he touched her for just some affection, mm-hmm. just a little touch, that he, that he wanted sex. So then she, she would pull away. Mm-hmm. She would pull away. So then it, left, <clears throat> it led to less and less physical affection right. in general, which was very painful to him. So, um, yeah, she realized uh, as we spoke that it was more anticipatory anxiety But that once she started, it was okay. Um... What I did is... I first had them time it.
1: Interesting.
0: (laughs) What did you have them time? The act and everything that came after, which for them included a shower. (laughs) Um... And how long did it wind up taking them? Always less than a half an hour, the whole thing. So the point that you were making was, it'll be over fast. Yes, (laughs) she perceived that she was so busy and so exhausted that she she didn't didn't have have time. So okay, so they timed it and realized it's 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 okay. It doesn't take that much time, right? Um. Secondly, I had them create a space in their room, which they called the sex space. They made it feel sexy. Persian rug, uh, pillows. Then, I had them choose a time. She was too tired at night, so they figured out morning was better, and they chose once a week Saturday mornings. And it was a rule. They were only to have sex on Saturday mornings and no other time so that they could start touching more in between without her fear that it
1: would lead to sex. Mm, good thinking. And so they would just be in their sex space and their sex time and she yes. didn't have to feel threatened. Yes. Yes. Makes sense. And what
0: happened? It worked. They, they had sex once a week. Which they were both very happy with, and years later they were still having sex once a week. I, I take an approach of intermittent periods throughout a person's lifetime, so I will set my patients free quickly, and then they
1: might come back if something comes up. I like that a lot. I like to do that too. Yes. And so you followed up with them, and you got to know they that followed it was up still with working. me when something else came up. I see, and it was still working. It was still working. And she was enjoying the sex that they were having.
0: Yes. Because she enjoyed it once it got got going. So she always did enjoy it. She just thought she had zero desire. So that's what happened with them. But you're much more up to date on what's happening in this field
1: of sex therapy. Well, there's some new stuff that if this was a couple of years ago, you probably would not have been aware of because it's brand new. So one of the things that we're really learning now is that for all people there are two sort of opposing factors when it comes to desire and arousal with sex. And I'm not going to get into the technical terms for it, but basically we're looking at what we think of as the accelerator and the brake. So the accelerator are things that drive desire and arousal. Things that make you into having sex and enjoy sex once you start having it. And then the breaks are things that interfere with both desire and arousal. So accelerator things are things like um, your erotic script, your fantasy, your attraction to your partner. Um, what else would be an accelerator? that would make you really be into sex, kind of your lust for life, what drives you forward towards your partner or just towards a sexual state of mind and state of body, and then what drives your arousal once you start getting into sex. So those are the accelerator things. And the break things are things like it's not working for me, I'm not attracted to my partner, I don't like the way my partner smells, I don't like the way I'm being touched... Um, anxiety is a huge break, particularly for women. Hmm. So I would want to look into, if these were my clients, what are the accelerators and what are the breaks? Hmm. What are the things that make her attracted to him? attracted to the idea of sex in general. What's her erotic script? What turns her on? What kind of fantasies does she have? It's entirely possible that she's got some kinks that haven't been explored, and if we don't tap into that, nothing is going to work for her. Um, Maybe she's gay. Maybe she's bi. Maybe she's not really attracted to him. Hmm. Um, Now, one of the things that you hit on that's really important is that particularly for women and for people who are getting older, both men and women, desire-driven sex becomes rarer, right? When we're Uh young and we're full of hormones and we're all pumped up being attracted to each other, we get used to having desire-driven sex. That is, I think you're hot, I can't wait to get into your pants. I can't wait to get my hands on you. And the rest kind of sort of takes care of itself. Mm-hmm. Although when you look more closely, what you get to know is, especially for women, maybe not so much. Like maybe you're really motivated to do it, but once it gets going, it doesn't really work because he doesn't really know what he's doing and you don't know how to teach him. So that's a whole other issue, and that may be going on with this couple. Right? Right. Does this guy actually know what he's doing? Does she know what she's doing? Does she know what turns her on? Does she know how to tell him what turns her on? Yeah. Right? Yes. Are they tapped into any of her erotics? We think that they're probably tapped into his because he wants to have plenty of sex with her, but we don't know what her erotics are, whether she understands them whether she knows how to put them into play communicate that to that to him mm-hmm. or whether or not he has a clue what he's doing how to touch her how to please her how to get her interest right and can they talk about these things
0: and can they talk about it and that's another skill in itself that's a completely separate skill
1: right right so it's clear that they're not having desire driven sex One of the things I would want to know is, did they ever? Ah, Something got them together as a couple. So my guess is, unless she just really wanted a boyfriend slash husband, she probably was turned on by him at some point. Did they ever have good sex? Was she ever really into sex with him? Right? We need to know that. Not that that's necessarily going to translate into anything meaningful now, Mm -hmm. because even if they did have desire-driven sex at the very beginning, they're not having it now, which is not unusual. But something else has to stand in for them. Yeah, talk
0: about that, that desire-driven sex. Desire-driven sex is 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 not normal after after a certain age usually? Is that what you're saying? It's
1: pretty rare once a couple has been together for a while right? It's why a lot of, for a lot of couples, sex drops off once they've been together for a while. Because part of what fuels desire-driven sex is newness. Yes. Right? It's novelty. It's very exciting to be with somebody that you're just getting into, that you're just discovering. And so, If you had desire-driven sex when you were young or when you were first meeting and now you've been together for a while and that new shine wears off and you haven't figured out any other way to substitute for that, you're really left with no way to initiate sexual encounters. And because they didn't, a lot of couples figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. They figure out that Oh, here's just an example. If he offers to take care of the kids, or I think you said this couple didn't have kids, but let's say a traditional couple that has a couple of kids. Mm -hmm. If he offers to take care of the kids that evening, draws a bath for her, makes sure that the laundry is done, because those are all all sexual breaks, right? Those are all things that she could be worried about or anxious about or distracted by that are going to get interfere with her having a desire for sex. He takes care of all of that stuff, and he gives her a nice foot massage and makes her feel all warm and cozy. And
0: those are accelerators that you mentioned.
1: Or, for example, she realizes that a certain kind of erotic literature really turns her on. Yes. And the two of them together tap into that. And they really know that if she reads... If they re- maybe read some erotic stories together, that's going to get her in the mood, right? So they create a space, or like you did, by having a particular sex space in the bedroom that could, you know, sort of set the mood for her, Yes, right? What works to sort of at least get her into an open state of mind where she's willing to be touched in a sexual way? And then, you know, and this is pretty common if there aren't too many breaks and you figure out enough accelerators chances are unless there's something else wrong she'll get into it and have a good time if he knows what he's doing and she knows what she's doing
0: <laughs> so there's a lot to talk about like when you're in sex therapy i you know this is the first time i'm learning about accelerators and breaks really as, interesting, as vocabulary right? words um Is there a list of accelerators and breaks somewhere, or is this something that you would just explore couples, couple by couple?
1: So uh, the book that I really recommend for this is by a wonderful sex educator named Emily Nagoski, N-A-G-O-W-S-K-I. Yes. Really, really smart little cookie. And if I remember correctly, she has a PhD in human sexuality, I think. Okay. Yeah. Um, and her book is called Come As You Are. Don't quote me. Look her up. I might yeah. be messing this up, but I think that's We have what the it name, though. And uh, she talks all about this. And she'll do a much, much better job with it than I do. And uh, P.S., she also is a fiction writer. And <laughs> I'm not going to be able to tell you either what her ghost name is. Because it's Emily something else. Yeah, she's got a ghost name. Oh, my God, I should have looked it up. I'm so sorry. And it's two books, and it's the intellectual's answer to Fifty Shades of Grey. You must read them. They are smart, and they're hot, and they're sweet. And she does it so much better than the author of Fifty Shades.
0: Thank you for those suggestions. Really fun. Is there anything else you would add about this couple, other ideas, or we can move on to a different topic?
1: I think that more or less covers it. Yeah, I would really want to know a whole lot more about what works for her sexually and what interferes for her sexually. I loved what you did about making it safe for them to have touch without her feeling the demand for sex, though. That was brilliant and important and it may have saved their marriage so nice job well
0: thank you mm-hmm. I love your new ideas Deb
1: that was really fun okay what next
0: okay so I thought maybe next week we could talk about um yesterday I I had mentioned by text or a few days ago that I wanted to get to know you more than from your website um I know you're a psychologist I know you do pottery. I know that you have a cooking blog. And you sent me some screenshots of a Facebook interchange between you and your daughter and some of her friends.
1: And my son piped in.
0: Your son from
1: Australia. I actually don't know if I even got to that part in what I sent you because he was down the line. It went on and on and on, this Facebook exchange. Yeah, I only got a few pages. Yeah, it went on probably for three more times that amount of space. And I stopped sending them to you because I felt like I was going to be bombarding you.
0: No. (laughs) it, It was, they were very interesting posts. And it was all about sexual consent.
1: Which is a really huge, hot topic in the news right now. And I have really gotten drawn into this dialogue i have and my husband has and our two kids have and i think it's really really super important right now
0: so it is a topic right now especially with the me too
1: movements right and by the way it references the case that you just talked about right this woman had all of this anxiety that simply being touched was going to mean that she felt compelled To have sex with her partner. So that even Mm -hmm. within the context of a committed relationship, there was that dynamic that she felt uncomfortable that she was going to have a certain level of coercion based on simply allowing herself to be touched.
0: Yes. And that's part of the conversation is the line to distinguish between consensual sex and non-consensual sex And when is it coercion? And I know that you had mentioned that you have ideas about how to help children to learn about this, teenagers to learn about this, boys and girls. Right. And I was very interested to hear your ideas, especially as a mother of four children, three girls and a boy. They're still young.
1: Yeah, tell me about your kids really quick. Just tell me the ages and the names so I know. So
0: Rebecca is 15, Sarah is 13, Julia is 10, and then little George is 8. Oh, my goodness. And you have two children.
1: I do. Megan is 27, and Brian is 24.
0: So this was a Facebook post, mostly Megan writing.
1: Megan really um, was the one who started the conversation, and it was in response to the most recent incident in the news, which was Aziz Ansari being accused of, how do we even want to describe it? I suppose the best way to describe it is being inappropriately aggressive with his date. And yes. it was just today that I finally read the in depth account of her experience um, on a date with him. Yes. And did you read that?
0: I read it on the website, maybe babe. Right. Babe.net right. or babe.com. Right. It was pretty yeah. troubling, wasn't it? The way that he behaved. So. This was a situation where it was a date, and it was a first date, and she describes in detail, and she didn't use her real name, she used Grace. Right. Where he repeatedly, she's writing, the author writes, that he repeatedly kept asking for sex and not
1: reading her signals. Correct. Right, and I think touching her without at least tuning into whether or not she was welcoming or enjoying his touch. Yes. And I think that this particular case was unusual in the sense of all of the other cases in which women have reported feeling coerced or forced in that this young woman didn't actually say no, although it does look to me like there was a point at which she verbalized being uncomfortable, and he backed off for a while, but then he started again. Yes. But what's really key to me about all of these stories, including some in my own life and in the lives of my daughter and my niece, and I'm sure you and pretty much every woman that I know, that something goes on where women don't feel comfortable saying no. Sometimes we do, if it's really extreme. And there are certainly cases where women verbalize no and men don't respect that, which is very obviously not okay, although it happens. But I'm particularly intrigued by cases like this one where women are uncomfortable but they don't make it clear. And what's going on in those instances in each of those people's minds? What goes on with men that they either don't pick up on the signals or they do pick up on them but they decide to ignore them? And what's going on with women that Somehow or another, they're going forward and doing things that they don't feel comfortable doing or allowing things to be done to them that they don't feel comfortable with.
0: Yes. So Aziz, his statement, I don't know exactly, was that he didn't realize. He was sorry he didn't realize. That's right. And as I read this, I thought about the social and emotional component of, from the woman's perspective how do they learn how to read their own red alert signals that say they don't want this? Right. And how do they learn to make it clear and make it known and walk away? All right. So and be I'm uncomfortable.
1: You. Yes. One story, which is very, very troubling, is that I worked at a shelter when I was in graduate school um, for abused children. And my boss was a social worker, and he was in his late 40s. I was 23, and he flirted with me so hard that I was afraid to go to work. And it was pretty constant, and this was back in the day where we didn't know about sexual harassment. This was, I'm going to say, 1982. Okay. So I was 23. He was probably 49, and he would invite me into his office and tell me how much he appreciated me and how pretty I was and ask me to run my fingers through his hair and ask me to sit on his lap. Wow. And he would make comments to me when I walked down the hall. He would stare at me. He would stare at my almost non existent chest <laughs> <laughs> and leer and touch me. And so, somehow or another, I can't tell you how. I actually got up the gumption when he had me in his office and he was flirting with me to say to him, listen, you're making me uncomfortable. I don't like the flirting. I really want you to stop. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I would if he didn't dress like that. Not kidding. Wow. It got worse. Do you want to hear the worse? Yeah. So, so happened at this shelter... I was like a counselor for the kids. Yes. And while I was there, taking care of the kids, someone stole my purse with my wallet, my keys, my IDs, everything. I got to know who the thief was because the police called me. The thief had tried to cash a paycheck from the agency where I worked, by forging my signature. And so they had caught him. Oh. And he was going to be up on federal charges for forging a stolen check, but the police, because they now knew who it was, wanted me to press charges against him for the theft. And I had to press charges, which meant I had to face this guy in court Well, I vaguely recognized him. I didn't know him, but I knew who he was, and he was big and scary. Hmm. And that was really all I knew about it. He had stolen my purse, and he was big and scary, and he was an ex-employee of this agency in Hackinson. I was terrified to press charges against him because he was big and scary. He had all of my IDs. He had keys to my car and my apartment, presumably, and I didn't know what he might do. The only person who knew him, besides me, was my boss. and The yes. guy was flirting with me. Yes. So I didn't know what to do because I wanted his advice, but I also didn't want him flirting with me. And you didn't feel safe and around him. And I didn't him. feel safe. I didn't feel safe around the guy who had stolen my purse, and I didn't feel safe around my boss. Yes. But I decided my boss is a social worker. Presumably he knows this guy. Mm-hmm. And even though I really did not want to sit alone in an office with my boss, that I was going to take the chance and ask for his advice. So I went to him, I laid out the scenario, and I said, should I press charges? Am I safe? He looked at me. He leaned back in his chair. He put his feet up on his desk, and he leaned way back. And he said, so, what's your fantasy? I said, what? Wow. He goes, what's your fantasy about what he might do to you? I said, an expletive I will not repeat here on the podcast, (laughs) stood up, said, I quit, I'm never coming back here again, and walked out. I did not press charges, and I never walked back into that agency again. Wow. That was brave. Now, the other thing that I'm really aware of, my daughter, well, this is another really, really, really big digression, but you'll appreciate it. When my daughter was 16 years old, she came home from school, and she said to me, Mom, guess what? I have a new hobby. And I said, really, what is it? And she said, evolutionary biology. (laughs) So I, like my daughter, think in evolutionary terms, right? Why is it that the female of the species doesn't turn down the male of the species, right?
0: Mm.
1: Well, if you think about the sex act itself, are we not somewhat endangered? First of all, the male of the species is bigger. Mm -hmm. Second of all, we take them into our bodies. If we stop in the middle, do we not get injured? If we're uncomfortable and we put a halt to it, are we going to get beaten up? Are we I going would to get think ripped? That
0: cave women would have gotten beaten up?
1: That's right. Yes. Or ripped, right? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yes. And I believe it's in our DNA that we feel endangered in the presence of male desire, male aggressiveness, male advances. We freeze. Sometimes mm. we fight. Sometimes we flee. But most often we freeze. One more story for you.
0: And I just want to say I really I relate to the freeze. We all do. As
1: it relates to
0: unwanted sexual aggression. Right. I think that for much of
1: my life I would freeze. Most yes, of us I have. get that. Most of us have.
0: I think that wow, just psychoeducation, just teaching girls about The awareness of the fight or the flight or the freeze. Right. Just If they just knew about the freeze so that they could know what that is, because they have the intuition, they know, red alert, red alert, something, I don't like this, I don't like this, this doesn't feel right. Right. But I know that I might freeze here, and now I have to kind of break out of this and speak up for myself.
1: Right, so just today... I read an article, and I imagine it was written this week by Barbara Kingsolver, famous author, famous feminist. And she said that she took her two daughters, when they were in fifth grade, each of them, when they went into fifth grade, because the boys were starting to go into puberty, Mm -hmm. and she sat them down and she made them rehearse. Don't say that to me. Don't do that to me. I hate that or something like that. I think it was, Mm -hmm. don't do that to me, don't say that to me. I hate that. And she made them say it over and over so that they would have that prepared if somebody did something to them that they felt uncomfortable with. I am not convinced that that's going to do a trick. Mm. I I think it's great training, and I think it needs to happen. But where I really think we need to advocate, where I really think we need to change the culture is that fathers need to talk to their sons Hmm. And I think they need to say over and over that you need to pay very close attention to a woman, to a girl or a woman. And if she is not giving enthusiastic, active consent, back off. Hmm. If she's not really into it, or one of Megan's friends said, ravens. Hmm. Back off now. The only problem with that we've already identified, it. and yes. that is what you were telling me about your client. She didn't get into it until it was already happening. Mm-hmm. So, in a consensual relationship, is it okay for him to start, even though she's not warmed up yet? Right. And I think really the only answer to that dilemma is that there have to be a different set of rules for an established relationship in which you exist in a state of implied consent, right? Mm -hmm. I do think that we don't have to be ridiculous and that if you're an established couple and you already have trust between you, consent can be implied. You don't have to ask every time you touch somebody if you've been married to them for twenty five years. Are you enthusiastic right now? Right, Are you wait <laughs> yes. to. Okay? You know, you right. can sort of start touching and see if she warms up or if he warms up, and you can trust that if you've been together for long enough, that if somebody grabs your butt and they don't want to have their butt grabbed, they'll say, "Get your hands off my butt." <laughs> right. Yes. But you, I don't think you can trust that with somebody that is relatively new, or brand you're not new. in a committed relationship. I think that you want to save butt-grabbing for a time when you really trust that it's safe to do that, and you're not going to be crossing a boundary.
0: And I appreciate the distinction that you're making about a brand-new relationship versus an established, committed relationship. Yes.
1: So, one of the concerns... I'm going to save my son's concern one of the concerns that a lot of people have not just men, is that they feel it's not sexy to have to ask that it can sound too clinical yes Um, and this is Brian's concern my son Brian says that he feels that the women that he dates want a partner who's confident and maybe they even like a bad boy who kind of so
0: they might does what he wants he's saying they might like his aggressiveness they might
1: find it sexy right right they don't want a partner who's too tentative yes and there actually is some research that suggests That the best sex partners are a little selfish. They go for it. They take their pleasure. They're not too tentative. They're not too eager to please. Which could make someone feel
0: wanted if they go for it. Exactly. Right. And that's probably an accelerator
1: for some people. That's right. So this is a tricky area. And I don't really have an answer for it. But it is the thing that I'm thrilled about is that these young people are talking about it. Yes. That the the 20-somethings are in a heated dialogue about it. And it was heated. It was. But it was great. They were all smart, right? They all really were passionate about their feelings about this. So I love that. And I don't really have an answer to it other than I think we have to raise everybody's consciousness, like you said about the freeze issue, and really letting women know that it's okay to say I'm uncomfortable, I don't like this, I need to stop for a while, I need to stop for good. I think as I think about my three girls,
0: I would like them to first of all be able to honor that feeling inside of them that says I'm not comfortable, so to recognize it and to know that it's okay to honor it. And then to be willing to be uncomfortable to say I don't like this right so they have to face that it's the social and emotional intelligence thing of being able to face that someone might not like them if they turn them away right or that they might appear mean right and that that's okay
1: that's okay Yes. and then for the boys yes we're well, really for both genders, and my boy actually, yeah cause consent doesn't just go in one direction, Thank like you. sometimes you. will do something right. Yeah. Is is there a way to obtain consent in which you stay confident and sexy? And I believe absolutely there is. If you stare deep into your partner's eyes and you say, I can't wait to kiss you. I am dying to touch you, right? You really will get an answer. Right, the yes. person will say, "Do it already," or "I can't wait either." <laughs> right? Yeah. Or they'll lean towards you, but if they don't say anything or they shrink away, mm-hmm. okay, then you don't
0: have consent. And that's a big thing about the education in this area. At least what they're trying to do in universities is to educate students as part of orientation: is silence is not enough. If they're silent, if they don't
1: respond, that is not consent. Right. Yeah. Right. So we don't want to be clinical. It's not sexy to say, may I have your permission to kiss you now? May I hold your hand? Right? (laughs) No, that's not going to (laughs) work. But if you say, oh, I love the feeling of your skin, is it okay? Yes. Okay.
0: So, Deb... I'd like to uh, move on to a different topic, if, if that would be all right. Absolutely. I wanted to talk about, yesterday, you went skiing.
1: I did. I went up to our little ski area right here in Warwick, Mount Peter, all by myself, with my ancient old skis, and I took a bunch of runs myself. It was... And it was symbolic for you. It was, it was. So. Uh, once upon a time, I went skiing in Vermont with my then-fiancee of five years, my college sweetheart, Ron, and we were visiting my brother, Stephen, who was an avid skier. He went to UVM so he could ski all winter, and he belonged to two different ski areas. And I believe that day we skied at Smuggler's Notch. And then we went back to my brother's frat house, and cleaned up for dinner. And my fiance Ron said he didn't feel well, had a bellyache, and over the course of the evening, his bellyache got worse. And by about nine o'clock that night, he couldn't stand up; he was in terrible pain. So we took him to the ER, Vermont Medical Center Hospital, and. They diagnosed him with acute appendicitis and scheduled him for surgery in the morning. So we stayed with him all night, and they took him for surgery in the morning. I told him I loved him, and they wheeled him off. And I didn't tell you this part of the story. My brother said, why don't we go back to the Fraud house and have some breakfast and shower, because we had been up in New York all night. And I said, oh, I don't know if I want to leave the hospital. And he said, really, they said it was going to be a couple of hours. And there's nothing we can do here. So let's go. So I was really uncomfortable. Hmm. I knew an, append- an appendix operation was really not a big deal. Yes. His roommate had had his appendix out three weeks earlier and was already back to school. So we went back to the frat house. I got in the shower, soaped up my hair. And had a panic. Huh. didn't even rinse my hair. And this is not like me, wasn't like
0: me. So you'd never had a panic attack?
1: I got out of the shower. I said to my brother, Stephen, we have to go back to the hospital. Something's wrong. Wow. He said, don't be ridiculous. Like, I'm sure he's not out of surgery yet. Like, there's nothing we can do there. I said, I don't care. Take back. So we got back to the hospital. And they said, yeah, he's not out of surgery. But if you like, you can go and wait. In the room where he, on the med search floor, where they're going to be taken. So we went. They said, "What? Well, you know, he's not down yet. Go get coffee. We went to the cafeteria. And again, I freaked out. I said, something is wrong. Hmm. We went back to the room. Now they started acting weird. They said, there's a special lounge you can sit in. The doctor will be down to talk to you soon. Now I'm sure, right, something is wrong. Yes. And it was. So the surgeon came and he said, something went wrong during the surgery. He we went into cardiac arrest and stopped breathing. But we got him revived, he'll be fine. We've taken him to ICU just for precaution. We can see him in a couple of hours. By the time we got to see him, he was on a respirator, intubated, completely unconscious. They covered up what happened. We didn't find out for two years, but he never woke up. Oh. So I spent the next two years running back and forth. Initially, he was in Vermont, and then we moved him to Massachusetts, where his parents lived, and he was in a vegetative state, and it was not likely that he was going to live a normal lifespan. So every time he got pneumonia or body-wide staph infection, I ran to his side because I wanted to be him when he died. Yes. After two years, his sister, with whom I was very close, and I decided to encourage the parents to stop treating those infections and to disconnect the tube feeding. This was around the same time that Carrie Ann Quinlan was disconnected from her life support and allowed to die after 10 years in a vegetative state. But the family were very religious Jews, and they did not feel comfortable with open life support, so they kept him alive. So at that point, the sister stopped going, really took a stand with the parents and said, I cannot spend time at the bedside of this person who's not really alive anymore. And I stopped going, and that's when I met my husband. And within a year of that, my brother, my beloved brother, who was 18 months younger than me, was diagnosed with one And he lived for 15 months. The mm, most aggressive so treatment possible. So the two young men who I skied with that day died within a year of each other. Oh. And in the in-between, I got married. <laughs> oh, Wow. <laughs> Oh wow! So my brother was at my wedding, and all the men wear wear hats because he didn't. Oh, it was Mm -hmm. very, very painful. I'm glad he made it to your wedding. It was sweet. It was sweet to have him there. But while I was taking my vows, I turned around and I looked at him, Mm -hmm. and he was sobbing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the next day, when we were on our way to the airport to our honeymoon, Bob had to the car off the highway because I was so hysterical because I realized he was crying because he knew he would never get married he knew he would never get married I was with him when he died I wasn't with Ron when he died but I was with my brother when he died which was a blessing so I associate skiing with both of them for obvious Mm -hmm. reasons and it's painful for me when I go skiing but it's very very sweet
0: but you went skiing yesterday was yesterday a significant day
1: my brother's birthday is January 10th, okay. and I always honor his birthday. Yes. And I didn't get to the slopes right away.
0: So you honor it with skiing. I do, whenever because I can. I always think it's healthy to honor a loved one with, a, with an action that's a positive action or a positive ritual when oh, the yes. anniversary dates come. Yep.
1: Ahead. Yeah, we do. He, his death date is July 12th. Mm-hmm. And his birthday is January 10th, so they're almost exactly opposite of each other on the calendar. Yes. So we always have lobster and champagne because that's something that we did together on his birthday. And nice. if I can go skiing on his death day, Or the other way around. July is his death day and January is his birthday. And, and you my have... kids never knew him. Oh. So. Because you were in your 20s? And he, we were 18 months apart in age, so when he died, I was 28, and he was 26. Mm-hmm. And Megan was born when I was 31, and I was 34. My was first 20. child
0: was 30, yeah.
1: Yeah, we were elderly, elderly mothers. <laughs> they were very worried when
0: when George Andrew was born. I was 38, but they didn't need to be.
1: It was yeah, all five. What was the word that they used for that, advanced high maternal risk, age? High risk. <laughs>
0: Yeah, advanced, advanced maternal, maternal age, age? Uh, 35 and over. Yeah, But I've heard that in Europe especially, it's not considered to be advanced maternal age. They don't worry as
1: much. Oh, well, they shouldn't. My mother-in-law, Bob's mother, was 42 when he was born, oh. 62 years ago. Yeah? He was a... Miss- oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's a freak genius. <laughs> it is.
0: So I wonder if you could share a little bit about what it is that helped you through the mourning period.
1: Well, it certainly was helpful to have a lot of knowledge about the process of grief because it had been my area of study prior to that. So I knew a lot about what to expect. So that was helpful.
0: and You knew about the process. Of how it went.
1: I did, because my research area prior to that had been grief and
0: And what did you, can you tell the listeners about the process that you knew would come?
1: Well, it wasn't what we all think when we hear about grief, because people in this culture still believe in the theory of Elizabeth Kublerovs.
0: That's what everyone talks about. Who
1: actually did not study grieving people. She studied dying people. Oh. So it's really bone Those stages are about
0: the person that's dying. Yep. Not about the people around them. Right.
1: Huh. So it's not that they're not applicable. They're human feelings that people go through when they're unhappy and troubled. Yes. But they don't happen in order. And they don't have to happen. And they yes. don't always all happen. So really, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. The book I would recommend now uh, about grief is by a psychologist named George Bonanno. And it's uh, called The Other Side of Sense. Mm-hmm. A very, very, very smart book uh, that basically endorses the idea that we are wired for loss. We know how to do with us as human beings, that we withstand it very, very well. And um, it's really a process of feelings, of going through feelings that really um, don't end. You don't recover from grief like you recover from the flu and go back to normal, that the experience shapes you and changes you, and it becomes a part of your life. And uh, But parental grief is a particularly different experience mm-hmm. and can be threatening to marriages and uh, people believe at their own rates and in their own time and we need to make a lot of space for each other and support each other I always
0: said I, th- I thought parental grief a parent losing a child is probably the greatest human pain that there is, I
1: think it is. yes I think there's it is. nothing worse having not lost a child Yes. I, mean, I was a brother and a fiance and living through parental loss with a lot of other people, including my own parents and my fiance's parents, I can tell you that if I think about the possibility of that ever happening to me, I imagine that I would simply drop dead. Now I know that's not true because right. I've watched it so many times, I've been a part of it so many times, yes. but I still don't think I could.
0: But it's me. an awful, awful feeling just to even think of it I know that Ben Franklin lost a child.
1: I didn't know.
0: Yes. And he still talked about it in his old age. It still caused him pain. Right. Yes.
1: Yeah. I've watched my parents all these years later and it's still just such a huge, huge devastation to them.
0: So you knew what to expect. And I wonder, uh, what was your greatest way to cope? What was, um, how, how did you honor what you needed to go through or help yourself?
1: So to I get think through one of the easily. things is to keep the memories alive. Mm-hmm. I have pictures around of both of them. I celebrate the anniversaries of their births and their deaths. Um, we talk about them. I, myself, I think because they were so young and I was so young, I sort of incorporated their lives into mine. So I kind of think of myself as somebody who lives two or three different lives. Huh. Like, I live extra poor. Let me hear. I travel. I do things. I learn things. I've had people say to me, you know, I get up in the middle of the night and make pottery. I have an active practice. I cook. I'm passionate about a lot of things. I've had people say to me, Deb, let me ask you something. Do you sleep? <laughs> Because
0: you have so many passions.
1: Yeah, because I feel like, okay, this is my one true life. I don't know how long I get to live it. I'm going to live it to the max. They lost their lives yes. so young. They had so much that they wanted to do and accomplish. So I live hard. I love hard.
0: Wonderful. And
1: I think that's the only antidote to death that we have.
0: Is to live.
1: Right.
0: And live more.
1: Right. Be really present to our lives. Yes. Throw ourselves into it.
0: And you're a runner. I am. I am. You were showing me the mountain where you skied, and you said you run to that mountain. I
1: do. It's... I run across the valley, and over there, there is a farm in the valley mm-hmm. of a bunch of cows that make the milk that shipped up to the top of the mountain where the ice cream place is that has, according to TripAdvisor, the number two rated ice cream in the country.
0: This is Warwick, New York. York.
1: This is Warwick, New York. And what's the name of the place? It's called Bellevale Creamery, and the farm is Bellevale Farm, and you can go and you can visit the cows. So I run over to the cows, and I sing them anti-war songs.
0: Why do you do that? They like them. (laughs) (laughs) Anti-war songs? Yeah,
1: you know, the old-fashioned, like... How many roads does a man walk down before they call him, you know, 70s rock anti-war songs? Oh, that's what you mean. Oh yeah, 70s
0: rock is anti-war.
1: <laughs> those old folk songs, Arlo Guthrie. It's like preaching to the choir. But that's so
0: specific to the cows, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, that's they're great. Very
1: anti-war those cows. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so I run about 35 miles a week. Mm. And I'm just at 58 years old hoping that my knees hold out, which they're threatening not to do. But it keeps me happy, and I feel pretty fit and young. And Bob and I have been running together the last couple of years, which is super, super fun. Oh, Very
0: nice to share that.
1: stride. He has a little mm. gets out ahead of me, but... We work it out.
0: So um, could you share with the listeners how they can find you or learn more about you, Deb?
1: So um, I have a listing on the Psychology Today directory, if anybody is interested in my practice. And I have two websites. One is for my pottery and food, and that is called DebsPots.com, D-E-B-S-P-O-T-S.com. And my psychology website is drdebbernstein.com.
0: Thank you, Deb. It's been such a pleasure. And thank you for being my first person to interview for this podcast. Have
1: fun time, thank you.
0: And now we're going to eat dinner. Yay. On your pottery.
1: Indeed.